we're live. Okay, good afternoon. Welcome to our meditation Q&A. take this as a meditation so first and foremost get into a meditative attitude a meditative frame of mind close your eyes open your mind bring the mind to the present experience, the physical, the mental, the four satipatthana, the body, kaya, vedana, feelings, citta, the mind, dhamma, the dhammas, the hindrances, the senses, and so on. And you can focus on the stomach rising, falling. Focus on the body sitting. You can focus on the sound of my voice and say hearing, hearing. And if and when you have questions, just open your eyes, type the question, close your eyes again. You don't have to watch the screen. There's no activity there. Bring the activity inward. Make this about you, about your reality, your experience. Together here with Shraddha, who is kindly agreeing to ask the questions, and I will be answering them. If there are no questions, that's okay. You don't have to go looking for questions or trying to come up with questions. If there are no questions, we can sit here mindfully, quietly, peacefully. They do teach standing meditation. In what cases is it recommended? If walking gets overwhelming, you can stop doing walking and do standing. If sitting gets overwhelming, sitting, if you're tired, if you're drowsy, get up and do standing or walking. But standing in many cases can be a fruitful meditation. You can do it as a sitting, as though where the sitting meditation just saying rising, falling, standing, touching, that sort of thing. Normally we teach walking and sitting, but standing can be a part of the walking meditation. Something distracts you, stop walking, put your feet together, focus on the distraction. Pain, pain, thinking, hearing, whatever it is. Once it's gone, then start walking again.
thinking arises, then worry, then tension in the body, all within a second. How to note this? According to Mahasi, if phenomena arises too quickly, you can be aware of them without noting. I don't know that's quite what he said. Try and note which is clearest. Whichever one is clearest, pick that as your object. The point is that you don't have to note everything. You can be aware of many different things and not have to note them all. Just pick something to note that's clearest and note that. Do you get good merits from meditating? You get goodness from meditating. Merit probably as well. It's just I prefer the goodness as a translation for punya. Merit is an old school translation from like 120 years ago. Goodness is probably a better way to understand it. Meditation cultivates goodness. Can karma affect a rebirth? Yes. My mother has recently died. How should I cope with death in these trying times? So number one is to not think that you have to be one way or another. You don't. There, there's nothing right about feeling sad or crying, that, that you have to feel sad or you have to cry. And likewise, there's nothing right about preventing yourself from feeling sad and crying. Don't have any expectations of how you should feel. Just try and focus on how you do feel without any judgment or encouragement right if you feel like you're not sad enough no don't think like that if you think you're too sad and you have to just get on with it and be a better buddhist or so on don't think like that i mean note those thoughts and feelings but more importantly note the thoughts and feelings that come naturally just try and see them clearly second take it as an opportunity to remind yourself that this is the nature of reality we all die. It's a part of life. It's going to come to you as well. It's a good opportunity to remind yourself of where you stand and your future. And number three, try and do things to remember the person by. Do things uh, on their behalf, you know, cultivating good deeds, practice meditation, send the, the fruit of your practice. May it, may it be for their benefit as well and so on. Often Buddhists will do good deeds in, on behalf of deceased relatives. Meditation is a good example. Practice meditation and dedicate it to them uh, out of gratitude and appreciation for them. Do you need to take frequent breaks from meditation? I don't know what you mean by frequent. Uh, we try to do maybe one hour walking, one hour sitting maximum, and then take a break after that. 
days when you don't meditate or something. You should try and meditate every day. How important is the position of the hands in sitting meditation? Is there a reason for placing them palms up on the lap? Is it also okay to place them on the legs or knees? Well, it's, it could be one of those things where you do it because I said to do it. That's often a good reason. The teacher tells you to do it a certain way, do it that way. Don't just try and find your own way to sit or so on. Just because it's good for the ego to do something you don't want to do, do something other people tell you to do, that sort of thing. Beyond that, um, it's a comfortable posture. It's agreed upon position. If there's if there's not some pressing reason why you have to, then that would be for physical reasons, physical limitations or so on. You have to sit some different way. Try and sit as as explained by the teacher. In this case, we tell you to put one hand on top of the other, palms up on the lap. There's no special reason for it, but doing it that way is good. It's a very simple posture. It's a calming sort of posture. But most importantly, it's the way we told you to do it. So, I mean, the point is people will find not only the ego aspect, but also they're trying to find an easier way. You'll do it a certain way and something good happens and you think, oh, okay, this is this this posture or this thing that I'm doing is useful. And that's just a trick. That's just a crutch. Tricks and crutches. I would say they're similar, but unique categories of things you shouldn't in you shouldn't rely upon tricks and crutches if there's some problem that arises when you put your hands palm up on your lap deal with the problem don't try and avoid it take the problem as an object of meditation meditation on concepts such as corpse, contemplation, or 32 parts of the body are included in the Satipatthana Sutta? Why not? They're good meditations. I mean, the point is, it's not entirely a, a sutta about, about vipassana. There's, as you point out, some of them objects are samatha. That's not wrong. It's not a problem. lack of desire, where I no longer desire to move, speak, work, or basic essentials of life. Is this a good thing? It's not really a good or bad thing. I mean, it's a thing, so you should note it. If, it, if the feeling, if a feeling of dispassion or so on comes up, it's probably impermanent. It will probably change over time. If you've really freed yourself from all desire, that's great. Probably nothing, that means there's nothing left for you to do. And if it changes, if it comes back, just be able to note when it changes. does noting thoughts work? I asked this last time, but I'm still confused how it works. 
my thoughts stop once I'm aware of it and I'm confused as to how long to note it since it's not there just once if you're confused say confused bunch of non-meditation related questions but maybe I'll skip those and just ask the meditation question we can go back to those if there's time good thinking I worry that repeating thinking, thinking, thinking is blocking out the thought. Can you explain the difference between a mantra as blocking out a thought and being with it? We're not trying to do either. I mean, thoughts arise and cease. So by the time you're in a position to note them, the thought that you're going to remind yourself about is already gone. You're just reminding yourself that it's only a thought. That thought that just passed was only a thought. Don't react to it. Don't create new thoughts about it. It will block you from creating new thoughts about it. That's what we're trying to do is change the way we react to things so that thinking is just thinking. It's not this, that, or the other thing. In the beginning, it seems like thought. a thought is a long process, like a noodle or something. Thoughts are discrete moments. I walk half an hour and sit for half an hour. Aren't longer sits required to gain sufficient concentration to gain insight? No. No, you need moments of, of concentration. Because objects in vipassana are momentary, they arise and cease. So you want to cultivate a state of concentration that's continuous, independent of what you experience. When you walk, you're developing moments of concentration. When you sit, you continue that development. The point is that why would you need to sit for longer when you can continue it after you've stopped sitting? when you're doing the walking and then you're doing the sitting and then you leave behind the sitting you can continue to be mindful during your daily life for example is it more beneficial to note a specific mantra of the experience rather than a general one for example, imagining versus thinking or adjusting hands versus moving. Hands isn't a very useful one, but thinking and imagining and so on, is, you don't have to be too particular. There's no great benefit that comes from it. It should be something that's a clear expression of what the experience is. Sometimes imagining, planning, remembering, sometimes those are more clear. Adjusting hands is not really what you're experiencing. Lifting, moving is maybe sometimes too general. Lifting, placing, pushing, pulling. But moving is not wrong. It's just sometimes you can be a little more specific. The words aren't magic, so it's not like there's any really absolute right-wrong way. It's not a key that you open a lock with. 
it's a tool that you use to remind yourself of what you're experiencing and that what you're experiencing is just experience not a problem not a good or bad thing not me not mine Increase awareness has resulted as I started to note liking and disliking more often. There's a lot of subtle disliking. I note disliking if there are small deviances from expectation as I observe walking or the abdomen or thoughts, emotions, seeing, etc. But the disliking liking is almost imperceptible. Am I overdoing it? No, I don't really get it. But if there is liking and disliking, even if it's almost imperceptible, you should note it anyway. I'm not sure what you mean by overdoing it. Do you have a problem? Is there something wrong? You should probably have some guidance from a teacher, try and schedule a course. If you're interested, you could do our at-home course if you haven't done it yet. And we could talk about your practice. If you haven't done it, then you might be only still doing. If you're in our in, if you're going, you might still be going according to the booklet, which is only the first exercise. You might want to take the opportunity to do the at-home course to learn the other exercises. I've started noting a rather disconnected connection being the norm in my interaction with people around me. This has made people feel that I'm insincere in my expressions of compassion. Advice. Well, you can't control what other people think, but it's funny how people criticize you for for not being you know, basically, basically, it's the kind of thing where someone would criticize you for being critical or that sort of thing, or criti criticize you for complain that you, that you're like people. I've had people get angry that I'm not kind enough or so on. I remember there was, it was a long time ago. Someone was yelling at me that I didn't have enough friendliness or so on like that. So, you know, you, you can't stop people from criticizing you and often, what I mean to say is it's their own, usually their own problems that are their unhappiness. You know, if someone is complaining that you're not, you're not in a good state of mind, what I mean to say, clearly put, Someone complaining that you're not in a good state of mind is not in a good state of mind. That's what I mean to say. So you really can't help that. Now, it can happen that you get into states of mind that are a little bit over-focused and you're a little bit out of touch with the world around you. But it can also often just be a difference. You know, when 
when people who, who are familiar with you they detect a difference you know they, they they perceive a difference in your behavior that's disturbing to people you know you used to be exciting and and funny and friendly and jovial and so on gregarious and now you're not so you you kind of have to i think ask yourself whether your behavior is unfriendly you know from an objective perspective and then you have to adjust Sometimes you have to realize that as meditators we have to carry out a role. It's not quite put on an act, but you have to carry out the role of being friendly. And it may not be immediately, it's not going to come from your practice. Mindfulness as a practice won't tell you, okay, this is how you've got to act. Mindfulness will help you to see when you're creating disharmony by perhaps not responding to people when they talk to you. And so you have to play roles when you're in it, when you have a responsibility. When you have a role to play, you have to play that role, just in terms of being friendly, uh, responsive. I guess it's it's two-sided. Often it's just the other people. Sometimes it is you have to meet halfway, perhaps. Try not to think that meditators have to act a certain way or that the meditation will t tell you how to behave towards other people. It, it generally won't. I mean, if you if you take the meditation, you'll just ignore everyone. Meditation would just be someone shouting at you, say, hearing, hearing. Told you to take out the garbage, hearing, hearing. No, you have a role to play. You have to take out the garbage and you have to talk and you have to interact. Mindfulness will help you see that. It'll help you see that you sometimes put too much emphasis on the practice, you know, beyond what is actually good for your livelihood in terms of your interactions with the world around you. Eventually, you start to move away from other people, you move away from society, and you might go off and live in the forest or at a meditation center. But in the meantime, you have roles and obligations. But it's quite common, on the other hand, for meditators to aggravate, through no heart, no wrongdoing of their own, but aggravate other people who are, as I said, accustomed to seeing you behave in a different way. Why is this person not behaving the way I want them to? And that's their problem, unfortunately. They have problems as well. Meditating and noting thinking, is it okay or proper to put a little effort into letting the experience go, um, detaching, but not to the point of repression? I mean, those are just words. I don't know what you're actually saying, but no, you shouldn't. You shouldn't try and put effort, except into being mindful. The effort should not be in. Because I guess what it would be is you put effort into cr cultivating a wish, an intention in your mind, a desire in your mind for the thing to go away, and that is not a wholesome thing to cultivate. You, know, you, you don't you don't put effort into letting something go, letting it go. Letting by its very meaning is is passive. Let it come, let it go. It's like 
forcefully letting go is kind of a fun. I mean, we do, but it's a funny, a funny concept because there's nothing forceful about letting. Letting by its very nature is letting. It's it's allowing. So if you want something to go, then you're clinging to it, and that's not letting go. If you want to let go, right? If you want to, the, what I mean, it even even with like desire, you want to not cling means you want for the desire or the attachment to go away. And even the attachment is something that you have to let go of. You have to let go, let come, let go. So the effort should be in being mindful and noting when it's there, even the desire or the aversion or so on. If I meditate alone, is it beneficial to use a timer or alarm? Yeah, one good thing about using a timer or an alarm is you're f forcing yourself to practice um, un ir irrespective of how much you want to practice, right? If you don't set an alarm, you're just going to walk until you want to sit, sit until you want to stop. It's very easy to cultivate partialities and, and attachments and habits of bias where something comes up and instead of dealing with it you hit the road you run doing it for a set period of time where you're not in control of when you're going to stop it's very useful for helping you to deal with things that you don't want to deal with so it can be really good to set a timer if you don't want to set a timer well indoors it's probably not that great but outdoors they would put a piece of incense and when the incense burned down they'd switch or half a piece or whatever I think indoors in the incense isn't a great idea. You don't want the smell really, but um, there could be a candle or something like that, short candle, because uh, I mean it's less disturbing. I mean, there's other ways. There are bell timers and vibration timers, that sort of thing. Do you think a teacher is required to progress through the 16 stages of insight? If so, how should one go about this? No, a teacher is not necessary. I mean, a teacher in general is very useful. Practically speaking, for most people, it's probably necessary. Well, we have an at-home course that can get you started. Normally, we do intensive courses that try and go through the practice that way. We aren't doing them right now mostly, but eventually we probably will again. You're welcome to join up, sign up for one of those. Eyes all the way closed or three-fourths closed? We practice with the eyes closed, sitting. When walking, we have the eyes open. How do you distinguish subtle disliking, neutral, and liking? Well, skill. You get you get good <laughs> at at uh, recognizing.
you become more familiar with the, with the states. You're able to see the states more clearly what they are. Is this one liking or disliking or neutral? What if you find yourself meditating for nine hours non-stop? Is that too much? Time just disappears. There's nothing wrong with it. I recommend taking breaks. But if time just disappears, well, you might want to practice in such a way that the time is there and you're able to be mindful, but it's not a problem. You might want to break it up walking one hour, sitting one hour, that sort of thing. I'm going to go back to the non questions that are not really specific to meditation, but uh, is the mere intention of doing a good deed but not having the means to execute it a good deed in itself? Yes. It's good. It's called manokama. It's mental act. Is it normal to almost com compose music that you've never heard before while meditating? Is that a result or just the experience itself? We're not in the business of saying what is normal or not. I don't know what the second part is asking. It's an experience. So you would note hearing, hearing. just had my existence downplayed hmm. and now I'm here to find inner peace my question is this what is true strength true strength well there's five strengths in Buddhism you can't really categorically say one or one thing or another is strength there's confidence is strength effort is strength mindfulness is strength Concentration or focus is strength, and wisdom is strength. I would say the strongest thing is wisdom because it's unbreakable. If you have true wisdom, it's unassailable, it's unshakable. But that just means seeing things clearly as they are. nirvana in this lifetime when you meditate and create good deeds for yourself and for others by following the five precepts of Buddhism well you have to do more than do good deeds and and keep precepts you'd have to practice to see clearly though those things you mentioned are useful meditation is useful ultimately to be to reach Nibbana, you have to see clearly. So you have to practice in that way. Practice in a way that allows you to see clearly.
Is there a moment in practice too early to start reading and gaining a more gaining a more intellectual understanding of Buddhism? Could it interfere with the beginner's process? Yes, absolutely. You should read as little as possible in the beginning, as little as necessary. Once you've read what's necessary, then you should practice. And as you practice, you can start to read more. But really, you should do a lot of intensive practice. I mean, at least either a lot of practice or a significant amount of intensive practice before you start to read advanced materials. That's the best way. How can one reconcile the teaching of non-self and rebirth? Nothing is reborn. Rebirth is a bit of a misnomer. It just means continued birth more birth we're born and die every moment Real experiences are born and die born and die the moment of conceptual death that doesn't stop so they call it rebirth but it really is more birth new birth another birth You decide. You tell me which questions I'm going to answer. And I'll say yes or no. I'm, if I don't know it, I'll just say I don't know it. It's okay. If you weren't here, I'd be saying, I'd be commenting on them anyway. So. What's your take on murder of George Floyd? It's impacting my thoughts at night. George Floyd was a black person who was killed recently in the U.S., and the fact that he was black is significant because it appears that that that's a factor in police brutality many times. I mean, that's the claim. I think some people claim not, and I'm not trying to diminish. I think it's certainly the case in many cases. I don't know in this particular case, but it was an, a fairly egregious example of police brutality by all accounts. Um, it's, it is not a fairly, it's not a relatively egregious act in the scheme of things. And what I mean by that is there are some pretty crazy things that hap that have happened, do happen, are happening and will happen all the time. You know, even just within the human kingdom, the human race, because if you look outside of the human race, it gets worse. <laughs> what's going on in the animal kingdom. But even in the human kingdom right now, day in and day out, the things that are going on, that that act, that event is fairly tame. I mean, it's awful. It's a, it's a horrible thing to hear about someone being suffocated to death. But what I mean, all I mean by that is it's, it's just par for the course. And what should, how should we relate to these things beyond social interactions like any social justice or that sort of thing as buddhists we should help use it to help remind us of this fact that this is par for the course this is what goes on this could happen to us 
any of us. You know, if you want to put yourself in the position in his position, how would you react? Because he was panicking, I think, and died probably in a very unpleasant, unpeaceful state. If it happened to you, how would you how would you die? Because it's it happens. This is reality. We're shocked by it because we aren't familiar with the fact that this is reality. When when Moggallana saw these ghosts tor being tortured, these spirits that were just in, in hell, being tortured in various ways, he would see visions of these people. He just smiled, you know. It seems so awful to think that Moggallana was smiling at this. But what would you expect from him? What was he supposed to do? Cry? <laughs> Get upset? Feel bad for them? What would that solve? What problem would it solve to feel bad, you know? You aren't human unless you feel bad. Well, if that's the case, then being human is maybe overrated. Being at peace is the most... If you can't be happy, if you're unhappy, that's where the problem lies. Well, that's cruel to say. I'm, I'm sure there's people who are not going to be happy about that sort of answer. It's hard to understand, but I stand by it. I stand by it as just being hard to understand and not being wrong. Peace is the most important. But, you know, as far as social justice and, and the, the statements we should make, I mean, obvious, that, that doesn't take away from the fact that we should denounce violence, cruelty, police brutality, any kind of brutality. As Buddhists, we might feel worse for the people doing the act because the person who dies... Well, maybe not worse, but we feel equally bad for the people doing the act because they're the ones who are going to have to deal with the conse consequences of being an evil person, you know. There's no um, diminishing the evil or the horror of what they, what they do, what they've done. It's just, in as for perspective, they're the worse off. The person who died did not do anything wrong person who died is, is innocent and so has that uh, purity in their in their being. They're free from that impurity that exists in the people who did the deed, which is really, really a, 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 a damning sort of quality to be a murderer, to watch someone murdering someone, that sort of thing. So we should denounce, absolutely. Not necessarily people, but acts and submit, take a stand that this is wrong. I think there's no doubt about that. But it's, but but those are two different things. How you how you perceive the act, no, how how you judge the act, how you judge the act, and how you perceive it. Because how you perceive it is how you suffer from it or don't suffer from it, from knowing about the act or relating to the act. How you judge it, well, that's that's theoretical and that's important. Just take the right stand, have the right view about it. What is wrong is wrong, what is right is right. Racism is wrong, brutality is wrong. Have right view. As a committed layman, 
studying, reflecting and meditating through knowledge gained from application of the commentary without an, I guess, authorized teacher for guidance. Is it possible to achieve stream entry or arhanship? It's the same answer. The only way to see Nibbana is through seeing clearly. You have to see suffering fully. This, it has little to do with anything else. Whatever helps you to see clearly, you know, take advantage of that and hold on to that. Use that as a raft to help you cross the flood. Everything is uncontrollable and non-self. How does any change in the mind occur? Personally, I've noticed big shifts in the way my mind works, even though I never force. How does this work? Through seeing. Seeing allows for becoming free. You don't have to force it. You just have to see clearly. You know, it's kind of like we we create a framework of control or free will or that sort of thing, but these are just concepts. There's there, we're not trying to say that anything about that in meditation is there free will or determinism or um, you know even control or that sort of thing. What we're trying to say is, is is about the things that we experience. About the objects of experience, if you want to take the we out of it, it's maybe not accurate as well. But the objects of experience arise and cease. They're unsatisfying and they're uncontrollable. And so seeing that clearly with wisdom frees you from suffering. It's really just practical rather than theoretical. Instead of labeling or noting, can I just observe my sensations and note pleasant or unpleasant sensations? You can do what you like. If you want to follow our tradition, you can read our booklet. It will explain to you how to practice. I don't have options, so you either do it that way or you don't do it our way. If you want to do it our way, do it that way. not a meditation question you once recommended watching the movie ship of the Suez. i'm not sure how to pronounce this T -H -E. i recommend watching a movie what movie ship of uh, t-h-e-s-e-u-s -E not sure how the word is pronounced what ship of ship like s-h-i-p yeah ship of the Suez. I think you got me confused with someone else or else it was so long ago that I don't remember it because I don't even know what movie that is. 
let alone that I would ever recommend a movie. I think you got me confused with someone else. Unless he's talking to you, or they're talking to you. No, no. Maybe no. you recommended a movie. <laughs> Would you recommend a movie? Maybe he had this question in the last, uh, last time also. Oh. Asking for what's the, what were you pointing at? But since we don't even recommend the, remember the movie. Hmm. As we are born, are we born in a high state of jhana? As we don't have names or know anything pass, about pass, the pass, pass, pass. <laughs> pass, pass, pass. Um, there are so many different meditation techniques. How can I know for sure that a particular meditation technique was taught by Buddha? Well, it may not have been. You know, the Buddha didn't teach all the meditation techniques that his students taught. So rather than think like that, you have to think of whether the meditation technique helps you understand the things that the Buddha taught and explained for us to understand in general principles. You know, the Buddha taught us to see the three characteristics, to observe the five aggregates, that sort of thing, to practice the four satipatthana, you know, whatever practice allows you to do all that, see clearly and become free from suffering. That's what you should practice. That's That you can know is in line with the Buddha's teachings. Not necessarily did he teach that technique, because it seems like his students taught many different techniques that he didn't himself teach. Can we attract birds and animals when we meditate? To pass, I mean. Is this question necessary for the person to become enlightened? That's what you should be thinking. That's our criteria. Useful. Is this question useful for the person to become free from suffering? Can you explain Nimitta during breathing meditation? Well, Nimitta means a, a, a sign or you know some kind of idea, you know, some kind of thing. So when you see, there'll be a, what we call Nimitta, which it's adapted from the idea that you'll see something when you meditate. But really, if you see anything, it's come in Thailand, they call them all Nimitta, which just means something that you see. You see something, you just say to yourself, seeing, seeing. I can't comment on breath meditation in general, but in our tradition, when you see something, you just say, seeing, seeing, until it goes away. Can physical exercise be seen as an act of self-compassion? Exercising daily can prevent future complications, if done correctly. It could, it may not. I'm not so convinced that it does. I think if you eat a lot, then you have to exercise a lot. But if you don't eat a lot, I don't really see the need for it. You know, people need it because of their lifestyles. They eat, they eat a lot. 
they have a lot of stress, that sort of thing. If you do away with a lot of that, you don't really need to exercise. I don't think there's anything wrong with exercise, and for many people it's necessary and so on. I made a video on this and it was very poorly received because I just basically, I think, just said, no, it's not necessary, it's not a part of the path. But that's just from a pr practical practice perspective in terms of the Eightfold Noble Path. No, it's not necessary to practice spirituality and become enlightened. It's not to say uh, it's evil or wrong or you should never engage in it or so on. I think monks should not. I think meditators should be highly suspect of it. Like, I mean, intensive meditators. And I think if you live your lifestyle right, you should never really need to. I mean, oftentimes it's just pleasurable. The results, are, we enjoy them and they help us deal with stress and so on. But if you don't have any of that need for enjoyment, you know, any kind of stress, doesn't really seem to be any reason. I couldn't imagine exercising. <laughs> just imagine running or jogging or doing push-ups or something. Seems funny. I used to do push-ups when I was in karate. We did knuckle push-ups and fingertip push-ups and stretches. and It all seems so futile looking back. If you have mental illness, um, I still feel I suffer from it. So how can one end it? not wanting to change things. Well, we're not trying to end things, or more accurately, I suppose, our perspective should not be one of trying to end anything. It should be one of trying to see clearly. When you see things clearly, mental illness can't persist, can't survive in, in conjunction with seeing clearly. They, can't, they don't go together. Seeing clearly um, prevents you from being mentally ill. Which really just means ha engaging in, in unwholesome habits of mind. multiple things going on at the same time rising falling of stomach minor pain in the leg thoughts a state of mind happy or sad what should i note no whatever's clearest it doesn't really matter which but just note something you don't have to catch everything Isn't suffering inherent in physical pain? I try to observe the sensation of physical pain as it appears without adding anything onto it, but yet there is still suffering. Well, it depends what you mean by suffering. Is there disliking? Because that's a kind of suffering, but disliking is distinct from pain. 
try and say to yourself, disliking, disliking. How important is journaling with meditation? I don't know, it's useful, important, it depends on the person. It can be useful, especially in the beginning, to kind of detail, first of all, what you're experiencing during the practice, and second of all, any questions you might have to bring to your teacher. I guess in, in, in some sense it could be useful for helping you look back and figure out uh, any trends in meditation or anything you're stuck on or so on. Noticing trends and, and changes. When I meditate, somehow I cannot feel the movements of the stomach, no matter how hard I try. How can I circumvent this problem? Once you get more relaxed, it's usually becomes more clear. You can note tension in the body sometimes. If you don't, if you're not sure about that, try lying on your back and doing rising, falling, and you'll find that suddenly, probably you'll find that, uh, most likely you'll find that it's very, very easy when you're lying on your back. And that shows you that to some extent it's just tension in the body when you're sitting. And it's just habits. So that starts to change over time. You'll find eventually you get to the point where there's a change that goes through, goes overcomes the body where your breath drops to the stomach and it really does rise and fall naturally but you know if it's very you can put your hand on your stomach sometimes that helps you can also just sometimes just note sitting sitting the rest of the questions are not really relevant to people's practice more about journals or some questions about you Hmm. But there's one here that's about um, your opinion or what's the name on the Theravada Abhidhamma by Y. Karuna Dasa. I don't know it. The Abhidhamma you can read. Bhikkhu Bodhi did a good explanation, translation, and explanation of the Abhidhamma to Sangaha. But I've said before that. The thing about the Abhidhamata Sangaha in my mind, and it might be very heretic to say this, is that it's not of the same flavor as the Abhidhamma. I don't really, I'm not an expert on the Abhidhamma by any means, to know that it is or isn't ac an accurate representation. I assume it must be a very accurate and skillful representation of the Abhidhamma as a whole, but the flavor is very different. So my recommendation is rather than studying the Abhidhamata Sangaha, which would give you a good uh, education on Abhidhamma, uh, Abhidhamma principles just start reading the Abhidhamma don't read what anyone's written about it just start reading it and you probably won't understand everything or really know what's being said but you'll really get a feel for the flavor of it which is very powerful just start reading passages of it there's some English translations maybe you have to pay for them I'm not sure if there are any on the web actually yeah let me let's see we have some Right here. Here's the first book of the Abhidhamma. 
you'll be impressed when you read this. It won't be what you think, probably. Oh, I should do it in Pali. I'm thinking wrong. I was thinking of reading it in Pali. In English, it's not going to be quite the same. I think it'll be okay, though. Okay. This is an old translation. Keep in mind, it's like a hundred and over a hundred years old. The eight main types of thought relating to the sensuous universe. Kama, vachara, atta, mahajitani. What are the states that are good? When a good thought concerning the sensuous universe has risen, which is accompanied by gladness and associated with knowledge, and has as its object a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a touch, a mental state, or what not, then there is contact, feeling, perception, volition, thought, application, sustained thinking, zest, ease, self-collectedness, the faculty of faith, the faculty of energy, the faculty of mindfulness, the faculty of concentration, the faculty of insight, the faculty of ideation, the faculty of gladness, the faculty of life, right view, right intention, right endeavor, right mindfulness, right concentration, the power of faith, the power of energy, the power of mindfulness, the power of concentration, the power of insight, the power of conscientiousness, the power of fear of blame, absence of greed, absence of hate, absence of dullness, absence of covetousness, absence of malice, right views, conscientiousness, fear of blame, serenity in mind and mental factors, lightness in mind and mental factors, plasticity in mind and mental factors, facility in mind and mental factors, fitness in mind and mental factors, directness in mind and mental factors, mindfulness, intelligence, quiet, intuition, grasp, balance. Now these, or whatever other incorporeal, casually induced, causally induced states, there are on that occasion, these are states that are good. And then it explains every one of them. What on that occasion is contact, which was the first one in the whole list. The contact which on that occasion is touching, the being brought into contact, the state of having been brought into touch with, this is the contact that there then is what then is feeling, and so on. That's the Abhidhamma. Like, that's actually the Abhidhamma, not what someone wrote about it. And you read that, not that you'll probably really understand all of it, but you read that, you'll get a better flavor. And because I don't think it's necessary to really understand it in depth. I think it's much more useful to have a sense of reality and a sense of the Dhamma. You don't have to understand the details. But I think that, that there's, you know, just what I read there is very deep. And the explanation of Pasa, for example, just Pasa there, there's a great Dhamma in there that you can learn. Is it possible to suddenly find yourself in one of the immaterial jhanas before experience the, experiencing the four material jhanas? Pass. 
don't worry about categories like that. Okay, well, it's four o'clock. So thank you all. Another good session. Appreciate again that you all come out. Thank you, Shraddha, for helping. Wish you all peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering. Have a good day. <laughs>